Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. Renee Paradise. Hey, Cam. How you doing? Good, it's good. Hey, people out there. How you doing? What are you doing? Huh? Do you want to come on our island? I don't know why. Sorry, I started talking like Mr. Roberts. <laughs> hey, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Especially when you got sea all around you. Sorry, I'm, I, my apologies. Uh, it's been a bit of a, a long weekend here uh, on the island. We've been celebrating pretty hard. Been going off to the mainland. Managed to get to a bar. I'm going to talk to Renee a little bit about that. I think I need a drink. Me too, Cam. We need to go to the Esky. Yeah. <laughs> what are you pulling out of the Esky? Go on, you go first. Well, I reckon I've been lying low and sort of taking it easy this holiday. And yeah. I'm going to make a last-minute ditch. I'm, I'm going to have mm. a, a, like, icy frozen margarita. God, I really should have done a sound effect for this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 The unoiled hinge of uh, of the esky. Say margarita for you. Yes, thank you. Salt on the rim. Yes, thank you. Frozen. Uh, yes. Slushy. Yeah. Yeah, slushy. That, that sounds kind of good. Um, I'm going to have a drink that uh, we're going to probably talk a little bit about uh, later on in the show. Um, a beautiful rum drink. Rum and fruit juice made just that bit special with a little bit of marzipan and sugar. I talk about the mai tai. Which is very much part of the uh, a manufactured culture that happened in America called you know tiki culture. It was all, it was all this ersatz sort of uh, a culture that grew out of one person. But to have a chat about that, um, he's going to be leaving the mainland and getting into the tinny with a little ten horsepower outboard, and then he'll come to the beach and. Throw the anchor. I speak of Hugh Griffith. Um, lovely, lovely bloke. I haven't spoken to him for a while. He runs Union Electric in Hefferton Place. Did I write that down on that sheet there somewhere? I think I, oh, it must be on another piece of paper. Union Electric Bar. It's between Lonsdale and Little Burke Street. And uh, his mastermind subject is rum. Arr. Sorry. Couldn't help. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about rum and all that sort of stuff. And before that, working backwards on what's going to be on the show this hour, going to speak to someone who is pretty incredible. Um, this food business, this business of feeding people, of hospitality, um, one of the, the joys about doing this show is that it has thrown up some truly awesome personalities, people with their ethos on life, the way that they go about their lives, the way that they express themselves through what's on the plates or their plates. Um, we're going to be joined by someone from southeast Tasmania, around the Huon Valley, although she's not there at the moment. I think she said she's in, in Hobart because she was hanging out with some friends. And one of the things about living down there is that you should always pack your glove box full of things because you never know. You could just go somewhere and they go, can I cast state? Don't drive home. There's kangaroos everywhere and things and it's too far and you just 
crash. I speak of Annalise Gregory, who uh, has worked at some amazing places. We'd sort of we'd, there's sort of this dichotomy: the the hort and the feral, yeah. And um, Annalise has worked at places like the Ledbury, uh, Michael Bras, Mugaritz. Uh, she's worked for a long time with Peter Gilmore at the Key, but she decided to leave all that and just head to this 110-year-old farmhouse on about an acre of land that she lives near the ocean. She's living a life that we could only dream of, I think. So we'll get a little picture of that and a picture of this book that she's written. It's called How Wild Things Are. You could read that two ways, couldn't you? Yes, Cam, you could. Yeah. It's a beautiful looking book, though. I haven't even handed it to you. No, I, I, well, I can see it from there. The cover's yeah. lovely. It's a... um, beautifully illustrated. It's a, it's a story. We're going to have a chat to Annalise about what it's like to be living down there from uh, one island that we're broadcasting from with the uh, the breeze going through and the hammock and the magic esky to the windswept south isles of um, of Tasmania. But uh, weekend, you've had a, had a good weekend. You've been out about hanging around. Did you get off the island? I, I did. I got yeah. off the island. Yeah. I saw a gig down at the Malt House. Good morning. That did was you? good. What was yeah. that about? Um, it was a band, yes. It was good. Socially distanced. I got to sit down. It was, was M-O-R-N-I-N-G, not M-O-U-R? No, Oh, M-O-R-N. good. So it wasn't a maudlin hour. No, 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 it wasn't. No, it good was, morning. It was quite charming guitars. Weep with me. People singing on the stage and playing guitars. It was no wonderful. No way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there is that feeling of life coming back to normal, isn't there, out there? What do you think, listeners? I managed to get into town on Friday, had not I? Awesome, awesome um, night. Went to the M Pavilion, which isn't a pavilion this year. I don't, I don't know. Have you heard about M Pavilion? It's sort of like an architectural thing where they construct uh, a construction. <laughs> what, what? See, words. I do words really what well. What did they construct for the food people? Well, they didn't do anything because uh, it's been COVID year. So it was um, on the seventh floor of Parkade. Um, which is that parking lot, the the very eastern end of Burke Street. Okay. Yeah, so not much from an architectural point of view, although you did have a view into the Melbourne Club's garden, which was uh, which was interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, we had uh, who was it? Danny Valant was uh, moderating a fine discussion between um, Hannah from the Moroccan Soup Bar. And uh, Khan from Sunda and talking about um, post-COVID, how we dealt with COVID, what the restaurant scene's going to look like. It was all kind of fun. I reckon if you go to uh, M Pavilion, the website, mm-hmm. I reckon there might be a chance you might be able to check it out. And it was kind of good. But what, what was your take home, Cam? What was my take home? Yeah. From from that. Yeah. We we've gone through a hell of a lot. Um, people have expended an enormous amount of energy and and adrenaline and fear, I suppose, throughout the year to to keep doing what they they do. Um, but uh, times are uh, pretty unpredictable and uncertain, I suppose. Would that that be my main take home? And what can we do? 
us, the people that eat food. What can one person? But what can one person do? <laughs> and what can we do collectively to help or to participate or to get on board? Well, I would actually say, um, well, thanks for that question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I need a drink. Anyway, I just get my, did, I, did I get my mai tai out of the out of the esky? Um, I think it if you can, if you can afford it. You know, because this is, you know, we can't command people to go, go spend money, disposable income on Mai Tais, you know, and fall <laughs> off your bar stool. You know, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a laudable thing. But, you know, I would say as much as you can um, support independent restaurateurs. It's the same as what we say about, you know, the music industry. Support independent bars. Um, support the, the little person because... One of the things that I'm really, really frightened of is this corporatization of the restaurant industry in the fact that the small independents, the ones who change things and do things differently and well and strive to for their own, you know, uh, part in this, in this place are going to be imperiled by the new conditions. So, yeah, is that okay? <laughs> I don't know what's okay, but basically the same message that we've been on about here at Triple R for wow, good. since we started. Yeah. So we've been consistent. That's good. That's good. You might have found that I'm a little bit hungover today, folks. Um, <laughs> Sorry for asking no, 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 the no. hard questions. No, no, it's good. It's good. But uh, I also want to do a, a little bouquet because I actually got to go to one of my favourite places, uh, Bar Lourinha. Um, after the M Pavilion and uh, got to see Matt and Joe uh, and sit at the bar. Um, this was a place that's been open for about 12 years. If you've never been there, my God, you should you should go. But voted one of the best places to take someone on a first date, mainly because there's just, you know, so much to look at and it's fun and there's lots of... It's safe and bright. <laughs> Reason- no, actually, it's it's a little bit... It's not an Instagram place, if you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah, no, it was it was the the lighting's a little bit dimish. Okay, yes. But you're safe there. Yes, cool. It, it's cool. Okay, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, and also during the week, um, should also mention a place that just got opened at a fabulous address. My God, eighty Collins Street, uh, Farmer's Daughter, mm-hmm. uh, which is a place that's been opened by a Peruvian by the name of Alejandro Saravia, uh, who has uh, used to be at Pistuts. I'm not sure if he's what he's doing there. But this has been his dream to open up a place over three levels. Like Wow. Oof, yeah. Like big, big spend. Um, which, yeah, showcase for all that's great from Gippsland. Um, it's probably worth having a look at. Mm-hmm. Some interesting food. And as I said, a really laudable type thing and laudable type thing, sorry. Really laudable concept about what he's trying to do. And... Uh, yeah, wish them all the very, very best to that. Yeah, three levels. So there's like a delicatessen sort of um, simple sort of dining room first floor. Second level is a restaurant, which is dominated by a big uh, charcoal grill. Um, so everything's cooked on, on those burning rocks. Mm-hmm. And then there's upstairs, there's a there's a bar. Wow, nice. And what what's obviously, what are the main things from Gippsland? Great seafood. Obviously, from Lake's entrance. Oh, I can't think what from the middle of no, because it goes down to well, and Gibson's huge. Yes, you know, yep. um, but um, fabulous seafood, um, <clears throat> really, really great wines, beers. Um, you know, so you'll be able to get some Sailor's Grave there. Uh, what else is awesome from there? Cheese. Obviously, 
it's the it's the salad bowl of uh, a lot of Victoria. Like a lot of stuff you see in the supermarkets comes from Gippsland. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole bunch of value-added stuff. So, you know, sort of like um, Samphire from Snowy River Station, um, all those sort of things. Yeah, it's good. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Annalise is in the dirty old town of Hobart as we we find a very, very good afternoon to you. Annalise? Hi there. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good, actually. Mm. um, So, yes, we found you in, in Hobart. Been hanging out with some buddies. Uh, in Hobart, yeah, I went to a um, clam-themed birthday party last night. Oh, really? That sounds like fun. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very interesting time. Where too many clams are barely enough. How'd they Something cook, like that. How'd they cook the clams? Uh, <laughs> I think it was more just, um, no, me- sorry, um, more clam-shaped items, more clam themes than actual physical clams. Wow, how intriguing does that sound? I'm not going to probably go down that road. We might just say, yeah, no, let, let's detour. Yeah, let's detour. We're going to do. We're going to do a little left turn, come around. The reason that we've got you on the show is, well, to be honest with you, I've got an excuse to chat with you on the show because I've been intrigued and wanted to chat with you on air for a while now since uh, since we first met a while ago. You have produced a book. It's called How Wild Things Are. And it's not quite released yet. It's going to be published on the 3rd, I think. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a book launch in Hobart on Tuesday. And yes. then it's out everywhere on Wednesday, apparently. Yeah. And the thing that exciting I'm... Exciting time. I reckon it must be awesomely exciting for you because this is the thing that you we've we've found you after cooking pretty much all around the world settling in on this wild country in the Huon Valley in southern Tasmania. A hell of a place. And how on earth did you end up there and what was this yearning that um, that drew you to this place? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a hermit by nature. I seem to find, like, these really far-off, isolated places and then just, I don't know, they kind of attract me, I guess, like like you're on southwest France, like um, Fez in Morocco. I just always seem to wind up in these random spots and then, um, I don't know, I guess fall in love with them and then want to stay there forever. But yes. this one seems to have stuck. And, uh, and, and this is the thing. If there's one thing that describes you in the beginning of the book, I think it's really, really beauty. I don't think I've ever seen these two words brought together, hot and feral. <laughs> um, I wanted to call the book feral for a while, but um, people didn't seem to think that was a good idea. Did they get vetoed? It got vetoed. Ah, oh, damn it. What do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, of course, yeah. The committee wouldn't, wouldn't have been happy about that. But this is the thing. I mean, your whole career, you've, you've worked at such um, refined and, and uh, such amazing astronomical sort of levels. Uh, and this is one of the, the wonderful things that before you can throw away all the, all the rules, you've got to learn the rules, don't you? 
You do, and that's what people always used to say to me, but I feel like I really understand it now. <laughs> it, takes, it takes a few footy seasons, doesn't it? It does. Like, yeah, shut up. I want to. I don't. I don't want to listen to you. But it's it's so true. Just uh, give us an idea of um, of your cooking career. You're a New Zealander, yeah. Yeah. Um, so started cooking in New Zealand. Um, went to TAFE when I was sixteen. Yes. Um, yeah, and then moved to London via Wellington, and then um, worked in a couple of different. Uh, I know for English restaurants, let's say, um, like Capsule Hotel, Ledbury, yeah. um, Hot Visits to Paris. Um, cooked in a in a freestyle, like one of the old um, like palace hotels in Paris. Bloody hell! Um, yeah, and just hopped around Europe for a while. Um, did R and D at Mugaritz, um, Moved to Fez to run a to do a chef residency in Morocco, um, and then just kept like coming back to um, Sydney, basically, and, like, kind of using that as a base. And Peter Doyle took you under his wing and uh, mentored you, would that be right? Yeah, um, Gilmore. Oh, yeah, Gilmore. sorry, what did I say? Did I say Doyle? What a dick. Sorry, yeah, Peter Gilmore <laughs> at okay. Key Restaurant. Yeah, sorry, I'm a little bit hungover. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> I think, I'm, yes, uh, I will blame it on that. No, the great uh, Peter Gilmore. So what was he like to work with? Uh, Pete was great. Um, I was at Key for about four and a half years, yeah. and um, I learned so much. A lot of it I don't think I realised until after I left when, you know, like when you're work- physically working somewhere, it's just the day-to-day, and then after you leave, you're like, oh, actually, I really took a lot away from that time. Yeah, it's in um, my muscle memory, yeah. Yeah, and, um, like, the love for, like, vegetables and, like, the, you know, understanding of ingredients and, like, super high-quality ingredients and also thinking about, like, where they came from and how they were grown beyond, like, them turning up. Like, France was amazing and we had the best of everything. Mm. They were just like, well, we use the same asparagus that Le Ducasse uses. Um, but, like, we never really thought about where stuff was from. It just turned up. Oh, okay. Really? Okay. Because yeah. that's one thing about Australia is sort of... Uh, I don't know, last 10 years, there's the whole thing about the narrative of the ingredient on menus and that gets um, uh, communicated to diners. We, we agreed? Yeah, and it was in Australia that that became a, a much larger thing for me, working for Pete. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, Pete was a, was a really good mentor. Someone the other day actually was trying to get me to weigh in on some like um, like Australian Me Too story. And mm. I, was like, Look, I, I was like, look, I really can't help you because... Um, like, I had a really good experience, like, working in an Australian kitchen. Yeah, so. sorry, but I didn't get beaten up, and it wasn't too... <laughs> the hours were crushing, of course, and, you know, there's the odd injury that you have while cooking. Yeah, but beyond that... Um, it, was it was cool. A, it was a pretty good place, yeah. Mm. And so, um, from that, um, there's a, a, a wonderful thing within the book of um, uh, you hearing that uh, there was... Uh, you, were, you were working, of course, at Key, um, uh, and the sections are hard, man, at that place. So, you know, and all these staff was sort of falling by the wayside and you had a bit of an epiphany about, God, do I turn up for work or am I, do, should I just run away? Or Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I've always um, struggled with anxiety, I think probably since, like, early teenage years, and um, at Key it kind of just, like, got the better of me for a while. Mm. Um, Like, sometimes in the kitchen, the kitchen helps with it, and it's great because you're working with your hands and it kind of keeps everything at bay. And then other times maybe, like, when you get a bit too much inside your head, like, it, I don't know, exacerbates the problem and gets on top of you, and it did 
me then. Mm. And um, what was the the final thing that you said? Look, Pete, I've, it's time. I've got to go. I've got to. I've got to do my own thing, and other stuff is calling me. And what was that other thing that called to you? Um, well, I'd always been like a stalker of Michelle Browns in France. Um, like, <laughs> I've been to eat there and been like, take photos with me, sign my book, sign my menu. Um, and it was always like one of those restaurants that I like. I didn't understand it, but I really wanted to. I was just yeah. super intrigued. You know, some things just call to you, yes. and you don't know why. Um, and they messaged me, and they were like, yeah, we have a spot coming up next year. Um, you have to get back to us within a week if you want it or not. Oh, and I was God. just like, oh. Do oh. I drop everything and just move to France? Yeah. Um, so I did. <laughs> so sorry, Pete. I've got. The, I'm going to Sydney Airport and I'm out of here. And and so you did. And obviously you picked up a lot. But this book that we um, we are looking at, and this is what this whole thing is about. It's called How Wild Things Are. It's about you cooking, fishing, and hunting, as you say, at the bottom of the world. This place. Tasmania and, and how did you end up there and when did you end up there and tell us a little bit about this special place I think I've been here for um, coming up on four years and mm. uh, I was cooking in Sydney and I got a cold call by um, the managing director of Franklin the restaurant and he was just like you know have you ever thought about moving to Tasmania <laughs> I was like uh, uh, not recently yeah. no Hello. I like Tasmania though yeah. I'd like to go on holiday there yeah um and he was like, oh, would you consider taking over Franklin? And um, I thought about it, and then I seem to make a lot of decisions in my life looking back on it where I'm just like, oh, should I do this? And I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. It's the worst that can possibly happen, and just like throw caution to the wind and just go. Um, so I was like, yeah, I'll come for six months, and um, took the third of Tasmania, and then four years later I'm still here. And was that taking over from um, uh, David Moyle? Yeah. Uh, that's when he left, because uh, David Moyle is a... a a mythical, incredible um, a part of, of this industry, a marvellous man. And Franklin certainly, um, uh, um, well, shone from the, the great southern state of Tasmania. And so you got to step in, in his shoes, huh? Yeah, big shoes to fill, actually. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I can see that you're sort of akin in a way because... Um, Moyley's got great skills behind him, but he also has this great affinity with his environment. So maybe um, with understanding uh, the provenance of food, you were, this was the perfect timing for that, for you. I think it was, and moving to Tasmania changed my cooking in a lot of ways. Prior to that, I was very much, um, like, would go back to my base training and do a lot of ranch dishes and things like this. Um, I was never able to really, like, bring all of the um, places that I'd been to and all of the ingredients that i come across from, like, Spain and Morocco and France and London and here, and also, like, my childhood having a mother that cooks Cantonese food, like, together before, cohesively, it yeah. always felt like distinct separate cuisines that weren't meant to meld and then for some reason in Tasmania I, I don't know I felt um a lot more able to just kind of find a way and like merge some of those things a bit more well it sort of seems um, <clears throat> one of the things that comes through about you to me is that this there's this beautiful sense of um Unbelievable! What's getting hot? Hot feral? It's it's that it's sort of like embracing the wildness of the area, like throwing on the wetsuit and going and diving for abalone. 
But having a nice plate and some nice chopsticks in the back of the car so that if you do grab a abalone, you can cook it on the beach and have it off nice crockery, yeah? Yeah, I did that the other day. And I also had a cold lettuce and a bottle of homemade exo sauce. Yeah. And I was like, oh, let's make sanctuary bell. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. My God. Um, and um, so tell us some of the things that um, that you're most proud of and some of the, the recipes and directions that you have within this book. And some of the things that I've enjoyed the most since moving to Tassie like working with ingredients that I hadn't really encountered before. Like I'd never cooked with wallaby before I moved down here um, mm-hmm. and I found a really great hunter and um, it's become one of my favourite meats to cook with. Um, like the fresh wakame seaweed um, from Tasmania, like I've gone... I spent a lot of time with some of these ingredients, especially when I was at Franklin, just trying to, like, get to grips with them and understand them and how to cook with them and do more with them and work with them. Yep. Um, same with abalone. Like, the first time that I dived for an abalone down here and went home and cooked it, I absolutely annihilated it. It was rubbery as hell. And I was oh, right. so embarrassed. Yeah. Like, I can't believe I'm telling you about it. I was like, oh, my God, no. And then I was like, I have to sort this one out. I have to learn oh. how to cook this thing. Hello. And what did you? What, what were you doing wrong? Not, not, did you not tenderize it? Not bash it? Not braise it? I did not tender. I did not tenderize it. I thought I was cutting it fine enough, but I probably didn't. Oh, yeah, Maybe right. I left it on the heat a bit too long. Yes. Um, yeah. But anyway, suffice to say that since then I've probably cooked like a thousand abalone. Yeah. And, um, you got it now. Problem has been solved. Yeah. <laughs> hey, curious one thing. You know, you say you got uh, all that kelp down there with the uh, wakame. Hmm. Um. Are they? Is it still really, really prevalent, and it's it's all still there on the south coast of Tasmania? Yeah, it is. It's, oh, thank um, God. Also, since I've been diving, I've realised that, like, I know there's like just as we have seasons on land, there's like definite kind of seasons in the ocean as well. Wow. Like one of the things that has really struck with me is that um, like the seaweeds change over the season, mm-hmm. and so wakame is a winter seaweed, so it grows heaps in winter and then totally dives off, dies off over summer. And um, just things like this that, like, I would never have, like, expected or thought about before. Hmm. Yeah, because um, the, the one thing I'm hearing is that with um, global heating, uh, that uh, along the, what is it, the west coast of America, a lot of those kelp forests, are, uh, well, I think the kindest thing we can say, they're in retreat, which... Yeah, which really sad. And good. Now, you've got a couple of interesting things. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing with uh, Beijing shutting the door on exports is that uh, Australians have been able to have access to, uh, to crayfish. And there's, uh, there's a couple of interesting dishes that you have here. One is um, this thing, a crayfish cocktail you talk about, which sounds kind of cool. Um, that was just uh, a friend came over one day and um, with a crayfish, i just gotten back from the mainland and he was sitting on my lawn and I was like, oh, you're here. Okay, this is nice. I was like, I haven't been home yet and then went inside and um, all I had were eggs because I have chickens, potatoes, um, and then there was like luggage in the garden. Yes. And so we were like, okay, I guess we're making something up out of, out of these ingredients. Here they are. Here's my pantry and here's the ingredients we've got. And And a lot of my Tasmanian cooking is like that. It's just like these are the things that we have that are in season now. Also, because in Tassie, it's pretty much impossible to get other stuff. Um, It's like micro-seasonal down here. So Mm. you just, I know, cook to get, you know, put a few of the things that are in season at the same time together and, like, provided they're really good to start with, which they generally are. Um, Yeah, it always winds up being okay. 
Yeah, well, what this does, this book does, is it reflects the area and it reflects maybe what we call a, a cuisine of opportunity of what is at hand. And if people want to see you, there is going to be a uh, – well, there's this book. So go and buy the book, everyone. That's your Sunday commandment. Uh, how much is this thing? Is it 50 the book, it is 40. For, no way. There we go. Look at that. Yeah. See, bargain Zola. Um, you'll also see there is um, a series that's going to be coming up on SBS. Uh, if you have children, you might have a Disney subscription uh, and uh, the Beauty and the Beast series. Well, it's not really. It's where Annalise hangs out with uh, Gordon Ramsay. I'll let you work out which is which. I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, well, was he cool? Was he nice to work with? He was really fun and really professional um, yeah. and, like, clearly, like, hyper-intelligent, um, takes things off really quickly and not what I expected at all because when the producers were like, oh, so we want you to cook off against Gordon, I was like, oh, mm, I don't really want to. to. I'd rather it was, like, more collaborative. Yeah. And they were like, no, no, this is what we want. And I was like, okay, mm, I'll right. do it. Um, but then it was a really good day cooking with him. He kept pulling me on the side to give me, like, lips of whiskey as well. <laughs> Maybe uh, why we have so much fun. Yeah, that sounds good. Look, Annalise, um, may there be beautiful things in your kitchen. Um, and are you, are you cooking at the moment? Are you cooking at Franklin still? No, Franklin is sadly closed now. And oh. I am, what, what am I doing? I'm mainly. Um, You're doing Friday somewhere, aren't you? I was. Yeah, over 2020, during the pandemic, I started doing a Friday lunch in a friend's wine bar um, that they would otherwise just have been closed. And um, it was actually really successful and became a really nice thing where a lot of the local community would come every week. But sadly, I think I'm too busy this year to continue doing it. Life seems to have gotten, um, yeah, very intense all of a sudden. Well, congratulations. Well, um, chew like hell. Because uh, this uh, this sounds like it's going to be a great year for you. Well deserved. The book is great. Um, love what you do, and um, yeah, well, look forward to seeing you sometime in the not too distant future. Again, the book is how wild things are. It is Hardy Grant. It's only forty bucks. Bargainzola. And uh, what's for lunch? Head lunch yet? What's for lunch today? Hmm. Have you thought about food yet? Sorry, that's probably there's probably a better way to ask that. Um, so I was going to. I've, of course, I travel with a pre-steamed abalone, twelve eggs for my chickens, a jar of exo sauce, <laughs> or container of rice. So that's... I was going to combine those things in some way together. Done. Well, that I think <laughs> I think that should be a glorious little symphony. Uh, Annalise, thank you so much for having a chat with us. Uh, look forward to speaking with you in the not too distant future. Thanks, Cam. Pleasure. Uh, she's fun. I like her. What do you think, Renee? That sounds great. Yeah. The book sounds great. I'm interested to check out the wallaby recipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you are listening to triple uh, uh, FM. It is around about 12.40. Uh, Hugh Griffith, I can see his boat coming over the horizon. We're going to talk about rum. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Uh, I tell you what, once I get back to the mainland, I might have to get a cherry. Phil Para! <laughs> it's on. It's on. He's still on. Still playing the guitar with his teeth. 
Ah, and uh, if I look over here, I can see that, uh, oh, Hugh's here, he's uh, he set up his boat okay, and uh, welcome to the beach house, Hugh. G'day, Cam, how are you? Ah, uh, better for hearing your voice, but it's been a while <laughs> since we've chatted, isn't it? It has been. It's been uh, quite a while. Been a few footy seasons. It, uh, uh, for those that have not met uh, the redoubtable Hugh Griffith, he is, of course, the patron of Union Electric in. Uh, is it uh, Heffernan Place? Heffernan Lane. Heffernan Lane. Heffernan Lane. Just off uh, Little Burke Street in Chinatown, or well, halfway between Chinatown and the Greek Precinct. Yeah. Look, I'm glad you took your time to join us at the Beach House. But uh, how's the bar in town going? It's good. We'd, uh, we'd like the restrictions to ease a little bit more, but I suppose the priority is to make sure everyone's doing the right thing. The health so, aspect, yeah. Healthy and safe. So uh, how many yeah. people can you have in the place at the moment? Uh, we used to have a capacity of just over 100. Now we're allowed 38, oh, um, according to the, the distancing rules, etc. Yeah. But the, um, the council's let us put some furniture out on the, uh, the laneway as well under their, their expanded dining or outdoor dining Mm-hmm. Initiative, which is pretty good. Um, so on a Friday and Saturday night, we've got a bit of a an alfresco dining area out the front, which is which is great. And a bit of, a bit of a buzz. Are you doing food as well? We we've partnered up with the the good people at Heartbreaker and Connie's Pizza. And oh, we really? have food delivered. So. Awesome pizza and a cocktail. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Well, um, listen, buddy. I'm um, sorry. I've been. Um, I'm, I'm a terrible host. Uh, you've heard about the uh, the magic esky that we had. Um, feel free to open up the lid and grab whatever drink you want because it'll be there because it's magic. That's what a good-looking you... magic esky. I think I'll, uh, I'll have a Mai Tai. No way. Yeah? Oh, man, after my own heart. We were talking about that at the, uh, at the head of the show because uh, one of the things uh, we wanted to speak to you about on Eat It on 3 Triple RFM is uh, because you're a great aficionado and lover of that dark sugar syrup that comes originally from the Caribbean, rum. Yeah, we do like rum. Rum and gin, but uh, rum is something that I've got a big, a big passion for, um, especially the, uh, the darker, more aged styles that we, we've talked about in the past. Yeah, because there's, there's rums that are that are either very blanco, very white, or uh, or very, very harsh and nasty. And, uh, and uh, Renee and actually we're talking about the Bundaberg rum effect of <laughs> up in, in Queensland. Um, but yeah. rum can be elegant, refined, beguiling, and just ravishing in its odours, can it not? Absolutely. It can be everything. It can be something light and delicate, or it can be something that, uh, when you say nasty, it can be full of all these higher esters that you'd describe as... And for a real rum nerd, mm. these things are fantastic, but for someone that's not used to them, they might be a bit off-putting. And we, we talk about things like dead mouth and rotten fruit, and, and they're actually things that you, you want to drink or want to try. Could you just um, repeat that? I just want to make sure I heard that properly. Did you say dead mouse? <laughs> Absolutely. Some of those um, higher ester rums have some really weird compounds in them that remind you of things that you wouldn't ordinarily associate with something that's delicious. <laughs> so we have some of the nasty things in there that, yeah. that we, we look for. Yeah, okay. And the best analogy I can come up with is if you go to, this, if you go to the, the cheesemonger and you order mm. or you, you choose a really delicious piece of blue cheese, Yep. that cheese would be quite boring if it wasn't for all that lovely mould 
that grows in it. And on its own, that stuff's nasty. Yeah, it Compared is. Compared with the, the delicious, creamy dairy aspect of it. It all makes sense. Yeah, and when I do my um, rum trainings, I talk about Tom Ford perfume. There's, a, there's an element of nastiness in it that <laughs> makes it even more delicious. Well, okay, wow. Okay, well, first of all, I didn't know that you do rum training, and how does how does one get to be a, a rum trainer, and then, you know, do you get a badge at the end of it or, like, a an epaulette that you put on your shirt or something like that? No, you know I like talking about rum. Yeah, so where, where, where do you do your rum training? Rum. I haven't done one for a while because of uh, old mate COVID. COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but looking forward to getting started again. We'll probably do some gin before we do some rum at the bar. Is there like a rum so, training um, boot camp or something? I've got this great imagining. Like, yeah, we've got to pack a puzzle. Go to Pucker and the, the tank range is next door, but you get rum and... No, this is all done at Union Electric, isn't it? Yeah, we. Um, I've done a couple outside of Union Electric. I've gone to a couple of offices, hmm. boardrooms. Uh, sometimes I go to other bars. Yeah. Sounds, sounds awesome, but but that's one of the things. So if we talk about the esters in rum, and these are the um, uh, the the flavour compounds and the ones that we perceive with our olfactories, is the fact that rum has phenomenally, forget the phenolics, but it has phenomenally uh, more than uh, than other spirits combined, pretty much, even gin, yeah. Yeah, um, can do. It really this goes back to what we were talking about before. There's such a diversity. Mm. Um, I mean, probably the, the other one that's big for all of these, these esters or um, congeners or flavour compounds would be whiskey, especially those big smoky whiskies. Yep. Um, you can have a rum that is less than gin and closer to vodka because it's been filtered and treated differently. Or you can have one that really blows the, the big smoky whiskies out of the water. Yeah, um, and it, it comes down to the way it's made. Uh, for starters, sugar and molasses produce different chemical compounds. I'm not a, a chemist, but mm-hmm. um, this is a very, very basic sort of explanation. Yep. Uh, but then sometimes we use this thing called dunder, which we've talked about in the past, which is like a it's like a sourdough starter mix. Oh yeah. Of, of rum, um, which encourages all these bacteria and yeast that kick off the fermentation process in the mash, if you will. Yeah, right. Um, so it starts off something very, very complex. And when you distill it, uh, which is basically heating whatever liquid you have and then capturing the, uh, the steam or the acid yes. or the spirit, um, we are left with all these amazing higher esters, compounds, and uh, really amazing, interesting, different flavours. Wow. Um, we are talking to Hugh Griffith here on 3 RFM. We're going to take just a very, very quick break and then we might talk about uh, some of Hugh's favourite things in a glass that have rum after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, Hugh Griffith has joined us at the Beach Shack. We're talking about rum. We're talking about how spooky it can be. But what about in the glass? Um, you talk about you, you dragged out of the Magic Esky possibly one of my favourite and spookiest drinks ever made, the Mai Tai. And it has an interesting history growing out, out of this sort of manufactured or confected culture, did it not? did. You're talking about the manufactured or confected culture that is... Tiki! Tiki, <laughs> tiki yeah, culture. Which is, 
yeah, audacious, uh, if anything, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and it um, has a different meaning for different people. Some people think of it as uh, uh, the decor, the, the Hawaiian shirt, mm-hmm. or the, the party shirt, lays and tropical drinks in clay mugs. Yep. Um, but for me, it talks about more of an escape. Yeah. And uh, the idea that you can walk into a, a different space and suddenly you, you're transported somewhere. And I think that's what um, Don Beach or Don the Beachcomber mm. was trying to achieve when he started his little bar in uh, L.A. and it took off and suddenly there were tens of thousands of tiki bars. Well, I remember, I remember being a little kid in, in Montreal, right, growing as one of the places I grew up in as a, a little wee lad, and there's snow yeah. everywhere, Hugh, and then all of a sudden you're in this sort of Polynesian paradise drinking, um, well, I was probably drinking a Shirley Temple because I was of that age, but um, yeah, it was an amazing, as you say, this, this, this confection, this manufactured thing, and an escape. Yeah. So the and it was completely new for its time because at, at that time and where um, so Don the Beachcomber lived between sort of early 1900s to late 1900s. But after World War Two, he started really pushing these things, and after the prohibition was repealed, mm. um, and he was in California and he had access to really great rum coming out of the Caribbean because he spent some time overseas. And that's actually a a fun story. He had an opportunity to take his uh, the money his parents saved for him to go to college and go to college or go on holiday. And he decided to go on holiday. Hey. Um, so he took like around the Caribbean. Yeah, and that's yeah. where he collected all these these decorative items that ended up becoming tiki. Ah. Um, and when he went back to LA, he was working on movie sets and using these these props and decorations. Oh, so he was sort of in art department, was he? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and. That's where that's where the roots of this whole tiki idea came from, and then he took over a little space in a hotel in uh, in LA and started serving these these drinks that no one had ever seen before, using imported rum, which is often quite big and bold, mm. um, and using California ingredients, uh, mainly citrus, pineapple, yeah. and putting these cocktails out. They're all top secret. No one knew what was in them. He actually had all the ingredients mixed off site and then brought in for his bartenders to assemble. Oh, did he really? Cause, and so yeah. which, which drinks did he invent? Was, was the Mai Tai one of his? No, the Mai Tai came from his um, rival. Someone actually worked for him and ended up starting up their own chain of tiki yes. venues. So Don Beach, and, or his name was uh, Ernest Beaumont Gant, um, started it, and then one of his yeah, one of his proteges, uh, yes. Victor Bergeron, uh, or Trader Vic, started. Ah, you know, that was Trader Vic. Of, yeah, right. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so, what he came up with the drinks like the 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 Scorpion and what? Sorry, yeah, I should ask you. What were the drinks that he came up with? There's a lot. A lot. There's, there's okay. lots and lots. And um, if we go down that road, I'm going to mention a drink that someone else might have because even the Mai Tai will. Someone will argue with me that Trader Vic didn't invent it, Don Beach invented it. But, yeah. Um, it was just that time everyone in, argued about who, who invented what and how and when and what the original ingredients were in. Like, we make jokes about martinis. Uh, if you get lost in the desert, start making a martini because someone will show up and say, that's not how you make a martini. <laughs> I've never the same, heard that. It's the same, <laughs> it's the same with a Mai Tai. If you get stuck... Yeah. Lots of attention. Just post about Mai Tai because suddenly it'll blow up. Yeah, okay. Well, that's not a Mai Tai. Um, listen, we've only got about a minute left, Hugh. Um, but you don't have to go off the island. You can you can hang with us, and you know because Renee's going to be spinning the wheels of steel later on. 
Favourite rum drink, favourite way to have rum and favourite rum? Uh, rum, a good dark rum from, I like Diplomatic Old Plantation, um, and just put with lime and sugar. Lime and sugar are rum's best friend. Or daiquiri, or you can add some orjar, mm. take it, and you've got a Mai Tai. Um, yeah, pretty much lime, sugar, rum, that's the best way to have it. Oh, nice, keep it cold. It's not rocket surgery, it's rum. Oh, yeah. Hugh. Awesome to have a chat with you, buddy. Thank you for joining us on Edit. Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 